This is episode 68 of Cinescope. And the thing about trains, it doesn't matter where they're going. What matters is deciding to get on. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Patrick Hicks to talk about one of our favorite films, The Polar Express. Patrick, how are you doing tonight? I am good, Chad. It's so good to be back on, and I uh, I was so excited when the Christmas season rolled around because it gave me the opportunity to remind you that I wanted to do this movie. <laughs> yes, and I am very excited to talk about this movie with you because this is my all-time favorite Christmas movie. Uh, if you've been a listener of the show for a while, you might remember last year for Christmas, I actually did a commentary of this movie. Uh, timing just the way it worked out, I couldn't have a guest on to talk Polar Express. So I talked about it by myself on top of the movie. So you can go back. I think that's episode 21 and listen to that. I'm still pretty proud of that. A lot of effort went into that, including an all-nighter or two. Um, <laughs> but now I'm excited to actually have a discussion about it and just really dive into why this film is so important to me and to you, apparently, too. Uh, but before we do that, how about you reintroduce yourself, remind people out there who you are, and then we will move on to our discussion. Well, I have the pleasure of co-hosting the Feel and Film podcast, a movie review podcast that really focuses more on the emotional takeaways of film rather than the the technical merits, although those things do play a part. But our focus is really more of uh, connecting with the film on a personal level and finding out why we take what we take away from it. And so it creates kind of a positive vibe. We call it kind of positive honesty, if you will. <laughs> and uh, we've been doing that for about a year and a half now. And um, yeah, it's just been something that uh, I've personally been very proud of. I know my, my partner in crime, Aaron White, is extremely proud of it. And uh, it's just been really, really cool to see where it's come from at its roots with Batman v Superman and, and where it is now. Yeah, I mean, we mention this every time you or Aaron is on the show, but Feel and Film is sort of a a spiritual brother or cousin to Cinescope in that we both sort of try to approach movies from a more positive standpoint, where we're really talking about what does this movie make us feel and why right. do we feel that and what is happening within the context of the film that leads to us feeling that and having those kinds of discussions rather than this one, uh, they shot this scene very well. And I mean, I, we, I like to mention that kind of stuff, but that's not what makes a movie for me. If, if a movie right. just looks good, but has no substance, then what's it worth? Exactly. Um, yeah. We, we'd rather have the technical merits support the emotional. Exactly. And uh, when they can do that well, then it's an amazing film. Definitely. And uh, man, do the, do the emotional elements of this film really <laughs> heft up uh, those visuals. So let's go ahead and talk about The Polar Express. This was released on November 10th of 2004, directed by, once again, my favorite director, Robert Zemeckis, who also directed Romancing the Stone, the Back to the Future trilogy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, Contact, What Lies Beneath, Castaway, Beowulf, A Christmas Carol, Flight, The Walk, and Allied. The script was written by Robert Zemeckis, as well as with William Broyles Jr., and was based on the classic book by Chris Van Allsburg, who also served as a producer for the film. 
The music is by frequent Zemeckis collaborator Alan Silvestri. His filmography is Zemeckis's filmography, as well as Captain America, The First Avenger, The Avengers, The Upcoming Avengers Infinity War, and its as-yet-untitled sequel, Avengers 4. And the movie stars Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks, (laughs) as well as Daryl Sabara, Nona Gay, Jimmy Bennett, Eddie Deason, and Michael Jeter. So, we always start off, what was your first experience with this? Well, I remember when this first came out, and my initial reaction was, that movie looks really creepy, because it it was the first time that I'd ever seen what uh, digital mapping, um, I don't know how you would describe it, essentially the motion, mocap, yeah, it's what mocap in its infancy, I guess, was part of, and I think I remember reading that the Polar Express was the first fully mocapped film, I think it holds a Guinness record of some kind being the very first and I didn't have the appeal uh, to it like I do now. My parents went to go see it, and I remember seeing this Believe ticket ornament on their Christmas tree, on one of their you know, half dozen Christmas trees around the house. Uh, they love Christmas. And I, I don't, honestly, I can't remember the first time I saw it. But when I did, something changed in terms of my attitude towards it. And I think it was from being very like, this is really creepy to this is spectacular. I remember just having, if I could describe it in a few words, magical, sincere, unassuming. These are words that really stood out to me as I was watching it. And over the course of the next several years, it just became a part of my movie watching experience as a single guy. I was, uh, or at least pre-marriage this would be a movie that I'd watch at least once during the holiday season, possibly twice. And what it's become for my family has been the second movie that we watch during the Christmas season the, uh, the, in, in terms of the, the order. The first being Miracle on 34th Street that we break out on Thanksgiving. But this is the one that we, we pop in when all of our decorations are up, the trees lit. We have other lights around the house, and we just watch it by Christmas, you know, some like candlelight, but more like Christmas light, if you could call it that. And it's just, uh, it's something I look forward to. I look forward to sitting down on the couch and and experiencing this with my wife, and now my my four and a half year old son, who is not quite understanding the Polar Express in terms of its amazement, and more of just the the fun aspects of it, which I know we'll get into. But it's just been interconnected with my Christmas traditions. And I think that's part of what amplifies it. Besides my complete enjoyment of the film, the way it sits inside my Christmas traditions, because it's something to look forward to. It's something that I could talk about with pretty much anyone. It's a a movie that I would recommend to anyone. Uh, It's approachable. It doesn't feel like it's <laughs> no pun intended. Polarizing, um, <laughs> but I think that it's 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 got this appeal to it that when you can move past that mocap and kind of get used to the world that's being uh, displayed, the world that's being built, it's it just becomes something altogether different. Something that I wasn't expecting when I when I saw it, and it's just continued to grow in terms of how much I've enjoyed it. I don't remember my first time seeing the movie either. Um, I was only 12 when it first released in 2004. 
and I don't remember a lot of the marketing behind it. I don't remember trailers. I don't. I just don't remember a lot of that. Um, I do remember getting it on DVD a couple years later, probably. Don't remember sitting down to watch it for the first time. I'm sure I read the book a few times as a kid because I remember like borrowing Jumanji from the library, which was written and uh, illustrated by the same author, Chris Van Allsburg. Uh, I read that many times as a kid, so Polar Express was probably in that same vein. Uh, but when I did see the movie, I did like it. But one of my earliest viewing experiences is watching it with my family for the first time. I don't know if it was me trying to convince them or them trying to convince me. I, I don't remember, but I do remember us. it was either just a, around Christmas time or it was maybe the night we decorated our Christmas tree or something like that, where we were insistent that we were going to watch this movie together as a family. So we did. And over the years, I've just grown to love and appreciate this movie so much more and more and more. It is my favorite Christmas movie, bar none. And it's my personal tradition every year to wake up early on Christmas morning to watch this before the whole rest of the family has gotten up. Uh, I usually watch it on like an iPad or something like that. I think the first year I did it, it was on an iPod classic on that little like three and a half inch screen. Um, <laughs> I've since upgraded. But it's, it's, that's my own personal tradition. I've done that for many, many years at this point, probably at least six or seven, probably longer. I'd have to look that up. Do those traditions amplify your appreciation for the movie? It's definitely something I look forward to every year. But what my appreciation of the movie mostly comes from a, a word you used earlier was sincerity. And I think that is a plus in describing the film and also just the the idea and the concept of belief and finding faith in something and that's right. that's where i draw most of my uh attachment to the film from and we'll definitely dive into that later but uh, i finally saw this movie on the big screen last year for the 3d re-release and it was one of the most magical movie experiences of my whole life i was the only one in the theater i, I went to like a noon showing on a Wednesday or something <laughs> like that. I, I I didn't have a job at the time. So I was just like, I'm going today this time. And I had the theater to myself. And so I That's got a awesome. coffee. I sat dead center in the auditorium and I basically cried the entire time because <laughs> this is just, it's that kind of movie for me. Um, I, I just get so much out of this. It's sincere. It's honest. It's uh, earnest in the same way. It, it's just, it's such a great movie, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it more in depth. So uh, just starting with story, what, what about this movie as far as story concept goes that draws you in? Well, the first thing that I, I draw myself to is the, the tale of two stories. This could have been a movie strictly about being on this train that was capped by five minutes at the North Pole. And what surprised me was the adventure of getting on the train and everything that happened on the Polar Express itself. I absolutely love the roller coaster experience that I get when we are, um, well, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say my favorite scene too, but the, and they're very close, but my, I think my favorite scene is the sequence of the ticket flying through the air and and seeing how it lands at different places and there's that callback to um to Chris's to Chris's book the cover of his book with the wolves mm -hmm. and 
I just, I feel the cold. I feel like the, it's quiet wintry night and I, I want to bundle up. That's when I feel like I want to bundle up with a blanket and, and experience that. And that whole ticket sequence of seeing it fly around and how it eventually makes its way back to the, to the train itself, followed by the sequence where the train is actually, um, moving over glacier gulch. Right. And, and just, you feel like this is when I regret missing in the theater because this is where I think the big theatrical experience really takes hold. And why I turn the lights off for this particular movie, because I want to get that theatrical feel. And so we have all these experiences with the polar express and we think, wow, that was amazing. And now we're going to get the payoff at the North pole. But then we get a whole nother third or half of the movie that takes place in probably one, if my favorite uh, depiction of the North Pole. I absolutely love the way the North Pole is built. I love the fact that you have all these different buildings, so you can kind of imagine what's actually going on in these individual buildings. Is this, is this an elf's house, or is this where they go to school, or where they work? They're all lit up, and so it, there are times when I'm thinking, man, the electric bill must be crazy in this place, because <laughs> there's all these lights. But I, I love the fact that we have this this two-part movie and both are equally satisfying you don't feel like zemeckis said okay we're going to focus all on this part and then just kind of a little bit here or vice versa we really get a ton in both of those sequences and they really they really complement one another you know i feel like you couldn't get to the north pole literally and figuratively without the experience on the polar express and you couldn't experience the anticipation of the north pole or the you couldn't experience the adventure of the polar express without what it's going towards because that was the point it was going to the north pole so for me at least that that be that idea of those two stories interwoven or at least two part stories were really what gravitated me towards the movie i like that thinking about it in two definite or defined parts that have connecting threads and character growth throughout the two um, I just love this concept of this magical train and conductor whose duty it is to find kids who need a boost in belief or a boost in faith. And he convinces them to come along and they have this life changing train ride experience where they learn about friendship. They learn about adventure and magic and faith. It it's a transformative experience for these kids. It's not just, oh, we get to go on the Polar Express again this year. Yippee. Pay another $10 at the local mall. Like, it's not that kind of experience. This is a defining moment in these kids' lives. And by the end of the film, Hero Boy is narrating uh, how he still believes in Santa because of this event that happened in his childhood, this affirming event. So I love that concept. And I love the film as an adaptation of the book because probably every single page of the book is framed within the film at some point. And nothing from the book is lost in, in the translation to the big screen. Right. They, they do but, such a good job of capturing, like Chris Van Allsburg has a very specific art style because, I mean, he did the writing and the illustrating for pretty much all of his books as far as I'm aware. And it's very distinct. You can look, Without knowing, you can look at one of his probably not as big books um, and say, oh, that's a Chris Van Allsburg book because it looks like Jumanji. It looks like the Polar Express. Mm -hmm. And they capture that in this film. It, it has this sort of uh, 
classic art style to it, this mm-hmm. old school art style. And man, Zemeckis just nails it. And the the whole set design of everything within the world of the book, whether it's uh, the Polar Express reveal in the snow in the street outside of Hero Boy's house, mm-hmm. emerging from the steam, or the climbing, twisting around the mountains, or arriving at the North Pole with the lights in the distance, like the lights of a distant ocean liner, or even just navigating the Sea of Elves in the North Pole itself. There's all right. these iconic moments from the book that are just made even more iconic and more uh, magical. I, I hate keeping to use that word, but it really is the best word to describe it, how magical it appears on the screen. Right. And that's hard to do, especially when you try to translate a children's book to a featured film, um, particularly from not only a visual perspective, but also from a plot. Because I know that I didn't read the book before I'd seen the movie. Like the first time I experienced the book was when my son was born. We got the book as this big stack from a friend of ours that was a librarian saying, Hey, here's, and I was like, wow, the Polar Express, this is (laughs) awesome. And so every time I read the book to him, I'm always using the, you know, the emphasis of words like Tom Hanks's character does as the, as the conductor. Uh, Like even the, even the way he says, I breathe slowly and silently. You know, I, I just, I hear, I hear the older boy voice in my head and it comes out. But what's interesting is that the um, is that is that the the plot itself of the book, the boy's already a believer. He's just on he's on the train. So I love that that what Chris does is he he allows his story to be expanded upon. And I don't know if he was the idea maker behind this to say, hey, let's make him an let's make him a doubter and and stem the world around that. And so when when we get that. What we have are not only these two big stories, but all those these little subplots. You know, we have Billy's arc. We have the revised cycling program with the toys. Um, we have the hole punch, you know, with the tickets. All these new pieces that 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 take a film and or take a story and just expand it beyond what it is as a children's book. And I, I think for me, the biggest takeaway that I took from that is the fact that you mentioned the movie has a classic feel to it. I would say it's timeless, but not not just in the sense that it it actually doesn't really specify time period. I mean, we get hints that it takes place maybe in the 50s, but then we get to the North Pole and we get these like state of the art tubes that these guys are riding in. So it it plays with the idea of time. You know, time is frozen at 11:55 until the first gift of Christmas is actually given out. There's actually a theory and I love it because it's a Robert Zemeckis directed film that this is possibly a time travel story where the conductor is actually an older version of the boy. I mean, it's just a, you know, it's a (laughs) fan theory that I was reading about, but I thought it was just wonderful because it plays into that idea that this, this movie really feels timeless and on so many levels. So to watch it and to like, even the fact that the kids don't have names except Billy, um, I think creates the sense of an everyman type story where you can, you can potentially, connect with the time period because you don't know what time period it is. You can connect with the overall story because you're not drawn to a particular person because they fit your name or they fit your personality. You can, you're drawn to other elements in general because all these pieces are approachable. I agree. And I'll have more to say about the, the K 
characters themselves in a minute, but just a couple more just like story and maybe even visual things to talk about. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier the sort of creepiness factor of some of the animation. And I think that's the big drawback a lot of people have with this movie is that some people find the animation of this movie to dip a little bit into the uncanny valley, which is where they they look almost too lifelike in some ways and not lifelike enough in others at the same time. And it it almost is grotesque in that way to people who find it that way. I've never thought of it that way. Um, To me, I just have to recognize how groundbreaking this movie was at the time. This was, as you mentioned, an early example of motion capture. uh, The first one fully filmed in motion capture. And it was also a pioneer in the development of 3D movie experiences it was released in 3d in 2004 it was pretty much like the first major movie release in 3d and i mean i guess we can thank or scorn robert zemeckis for that nowadays with the the reign of 3d over our wallets but uh there's something to be said for that and watching it in 3d last year the way it was originally released it's a great experience there's so many moments in the film that aren't gimmicky but are really enhanced by the 3d experience so if you can get your hands on the 3d blu-ray or even better see a screening of the film in 3d if it comes around again this year do it do it do it i definitely will if it comes (laughs) nearby again well the the 3d aspect of it is something that i obviously missed out on because i didn't see it in the theaters but there's a lot to be said about purposefully filming for 3D as opposed to filming a movie and then attaching 3D afterwards. Right. And we can clearly see in several scenes, particularly the Glacier Gulch uh, chase sequence, the uh, the caribou slowing the 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 moment where the the conductor slows down with the caribou and it closes in. These shots of the Polar Express coming at you slowly. Mm-hmm. Those are not only some callbacks to the back of the future movies in some ways, but at the same time, they're also purposefully created visuals to expand and enhance that 3d experience. Because I, I think what I like about Zemeckis or any director for that matter is when they say, we've got a really amazing story and let's, let's enhance it with these elements. What I don't like is a director that says, here's a mediocre story. And in order to save it, we're going to add all this other stuff to it. Right. Um, I think Christopher Nolan does a fantastic job in his films to say, I want to make a great story first and then I'll manipulate it in some way, shape or form. Zemeckis does this exact thing for the polar express. It's a great story because he allowed, he was allowed to, or he in collaboration, uh, with Osberg expanded on it. And then he said, okay, how can we, how can we attach these iconic visuals from the store, from the book, which, which are equally a part of its success. And at the same time, give the audience that amazing awe inspiring visual. That's going to make them go, wow, that was fun to watch. And I think the 3d aspect of it is a smart thing to do was a smart thing to do. I definitely agree that it, I mean, it looks like an early mocap movie. I mean, it was pioneering, and but I'm okay with that because of the fact that I'm distracted less and less and less. In fact, I'm not distracted at all by it as I've watched it more because the story is so compelling and everything else about it kind of makes that other piece that was an eyesore for me at first just really kind of degrade and not even 
exist in my mind when I'm watching it. I'm more, I, I look forward more to everything else about the movie when I pop it in at Christmas than with wondering, man, are these visuals going to hold up? <laughs> because I do think about that sometimes when I watch movies like Tron. And I'm going, okay, are the visuals going to distract me from this? Polar Express doesn't do that for me because it's enough of a, it's enough of a, of a, of a satisfying movie uh, on other levels that, that just doesn't matter. To, to, I'm glad that you mentioned the Back to the Future comparisons because I just wanted to mention two of my favorite small comparisons. Uh, one, there's a flux capacitor in the engine that you can, <laughs> you can see very briefly in the scene where uh, the cotter pin sheared off yeah uh, in the background there and then Love also of that, that um the way santa disappears at the end of the film in the trail of sparks that's definitely the the fire trails from the delorean so mm-hmm. uh i love those callbacks and there's a few others I do too. um I do too. but to transition into characters i first want to say what i love about these characters the kids specifically is that to kids everything that happening that is happening right now is the most important thing and that is <laughs> what so happens true. throughout the entire film. The drama in the movie doesn't come from dramatic sequences. It comes from kids reacting to normal sequences dramatically because that's what kids do. And that's part of the sincerity of the film. So whether mm-hmm. it's it's pulling the emergency brake or losing the ticket, uh, she didn't lose her ticket, I did. And it's like the most <laughs> depressing little thing because he's so sad that he lost his girl's ticket or, oh no, she's going to get thrown off the train. There's all these little <laughs> moments of earnestness that are just such kid moments because only kids would react in the way that they do. And I think that's a, a big part of this movie's charm is you're watching kids and they're believable kids. Right. Um, and and I love the fact that you you brought that up that everything right now is the most important thing because it just amplifies their personality and it 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 allows you to fall in love with each and every person. And we have essentially four four kids that we're focused on. We have Billy, we have uh Hero Girl, we have Hero Boy, and we have um I forget what they call it. What's he cast at? Know it all kid. All bringing something to the table. And I, I look at each one of them and I go, man, they each have their moments when you're like, oh, if they weren't in this movie, it would be less than what it is to me. <laughs> and, and the know-it-all kid, I absolutely love um, the actor that plays him. He's been in so many different little things as this nerdy guy. He was in Greece and he was in, he was in uh, war games. And his, his voice is so distinct that I don't know if you'd call it vocal typecasting. <laughs> but, but I I can't imagine hearing him or hearing that voice without thinking of a nerd because that's what a nerd sounds like to me from a cinematic point of view. Just because I've seen him play the nerd in in a in these other movies. But what's great is I actually can relate to him because I'm that guy that just interjects. Hey, you know what kind of train this is? Hey, look at that. <laughs> hey, look at that. Hey, what are you going now? Hey, well, I'm not doing anything. What, what's, what's going on? And it's like, he's so just self-absorbed with what he's concerned with and wanting everybody to kind of know what he knows that he just kind of the payoff at the end when he gets his ticket and what to, to learn or lean <laughs> then turns to learn <laughs> is so fitting. And all of them are, but I think for, for me, his is one of the most fitting because he, even he has his own little character arc. 
you know, where mm-hmm. we, we kind of believe at the end that he's going to change a little bit. He's still probably going to be the obnoxious, nerdy kid, but he's going to be a little bit softer to listen to more people and to maybe kind of absorb more information before he goes to spout off his own thing. And I just, I love that quartet of, of characters because they all, even though they're doing something, even though they all have their own thing that they're doing, they work together as actors within the story, as characters within the story to enhance each other. Um, and, and I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, let's start off talking about Hero Boy. Um, I want to draw attention to something you were talking about earlier, where doubt was introduced to this character in the translation from book to screen. The opening monologue of the film is almost word for word from the book, but there's one key change. And I mentioned this in my commentary last year as well. But in the book, it says, a sound a friend had told me I'd never hear. But in the movie, it says, I was afraid I'd never hear. Talking about the bells from Santa's sleigh. Mm -hmm. And by making this change, they changed the hero boy's motivation from proving a friend wrong in the book to proving himself wrong. He was afraid that Santa wasn't real. He didn't necessarily want that to be true, but based on his own research, based on what he's heard from other people, based on all these things, he has surmised that there's no way that Santa can be real. And so he's doubting that. And he's afraid that he's past this time in his childhood where you can believe in Santa. Mm-hmm. And He's just this skeptical by nature character, unlike in the book, that we have to have some sort of conflict for the character, and this is his. He's skeptical. Even when they first board the train and they they pass Herpelsheimer's, and all the kids are so excited, they're out looking at the toys, the first first thing he does is he seeks to disprove the Santa that's in the window. He finds the gear in his back, and he Hmm. nods his head and makes his face, yep, yep, I knew it. There it is again, the the man trying to convince us that this guy is real and he's not, uh, sort of that kind of mindset. And it's just this fascinating character trait where this kid... He he doubts everything. He he doesn't have one hundred percent belief in anything that he can't see or prove with his own eyes. And I I really like that growth that he goes through uh, with that character flaw throughout mm-hmm. the film. He is a character that what makes him different. And I think a well, I won't say what makes him different. I look at him and I see a guy who wants to believe, and I think that's the key right there. Because we could have been introduced with a character who is spiteful, who wants to who wants to prove everybody wrong, and he 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 articulates that a little bit with his little smirks and grimaces and things like that, but he still gets on the train, and he still asks the questions to to the ghost, and and it's, he, he he you get the sense that he doesn't want to doubt. He wants this to be true. And, you know, I mean, from a biblical standpoint, it reminds me a lot of Thomas, who's a character in Scripture that says he, he wants to believe. I want to believe that you are the Christ. I need to see, I need to touch the hands and feet. I need, I need, I've got to see it. And I'm always going to be drawn to that aspect of, of his character because of that, that just almost deliberate reminder. I don't know if Zemeckis was doing that intentionally, but for me— he reminds me a lot of Thomas in that regard, but I love the fact that we don't get a we don't get a we don't get a pessimist. We get a we get a distant optimist or maybe a realist at this point, mm-hmm. because he doesn't seek out to prove people wrong. He doesn't go out to he doesn't try to squelch anybody else on the train's fun. 
He doesn't go and say, well, you know what? Santa's not real. Whatever. That's you're dumb. Because I think that kind of motive would have been kind of a, I don't know, crappy way of kind of moving the story along. Because we, from the very beginning, we get both a sense of desire to believe and a realistic kind of presence that he has of, of, of proving that, that Santa's not real. So we're kind of in the story with him. You know, we want, we want to, we're more empathetic towards him as a character is what I'm getting at, as opposed to just saying, Oh, we're going to see him and his heart change. No, his heart wants to change, but he just doesn't know how to get there. And the polar express helps him in obviously a lot of ways to get there. Uh, but I felt like that was different than what we get from, from other non-belief to belief stories, whether it's spiritual or otherwise, uh, going from pessimist to optimist, that kind of thing. His catchphrase is, are you sure? Not you're wrong. It's, right. are you sure? Like, what proof do you have? What certainty do you have that this is fact, that this is something that you believe? Uh, it, he, he has to make these leaps of faith throughout the film. The very first one that I think he really makes, well, first off, there's jumping uh, the, the train to the, from the, the last cart to the caboose, where he's trying to give the ticket back to the hero girl. That's mm-hmm. his first, like, literal leap of faith but his first leap of trust in something is when they are they need to stop the train because the caribou are coming up and she says they the the engineers told me that this is the break he says well this one looks like a break are you sure it's not this one instead like come on what what is it are you sure are you sure and she she was sure, but then he introduces doubt into the situation and she's no longer sure. And that first leap of faith he takes is, okay, I'm just going to trust that she was sure or trust that she was remembering correctly. And he does it and it was right. And so he learns then, okay, I could start to trust a little bit better. I can start to believe a little bit better. And the whole rest of the film is him taking these leaps of faith, whether it's following the hero girl through the North Pole uh, the music that he can't hear or the sleigh bells that he can't hear and closing his eyes, the the most heartbreaking moment of the film when Santa is here and he can't see him. This is the first moment in the film where he can't see something with his eyes and prove that it is or is not real. And he is at the verge of tears. He's crying. I can't see him. I can't see him. And then the bell lands at his feet and he picks it up. And we have that fantastic camera shot that Zemeckis uses a few times throughout the film where it, the camera drops below the ground and stares up. I love that. He uses it at oh, the beginning okay. through the book, uh, mm-hmm. the encyclopedia, and then this moment where he's picking the bell up from the ground and he picks it up and nothing. And again, on the verge of tears, he is trying so desperately to convince himself that, I, that he believes that this is something that face it or not, I can't see Santa. I want to have this experience that everybody else around me is having. I want to hear these bells. I have to take that leap of faith, that final leap of faith for him. And he does it and he rings a bell and it's just such a relieving moment of the film because he has come on this journey and this arc throughout the film. Absolutely. And I think he's a nice balance between Hero Girl and Billy. You know, he is in this place of wanting to believe. Hero Girl is like, I'm all in. You're not going to convince me otherwise. And then there's Billy, who his story arc is simply, Christmas just doesn't work out for me. 
like he's kind of beyond trying to believe. And so you could almost, when you initially watch this movie, say, oh, Billy's like, you know, hero boy. No, no, he's not. Billy is, Billy's gone, essentially. Like he's, he's, he's on this, maybe he has similar motives, like I'm going to get on the train. But he actually, you know, he hesitates and he has to run to get on the train. So he's like behind the, you know, he's literally behind the, the, the story at this point. And throughout the movie, I, I just, I gravitate towards that line. Christmas just doesn't work out for me. I feel like this kid's not even, what, seven years old or eight mm-hmm. years old? And he feels like he's had the life of a 50-year-old who's had, like, all this tragedy. We wonder what's going on. We see his house and how it's on the other side of the tracks and how it's not. We glean a lot from him through these visuals and through the lines that he says. And I think our hope is that he gets redeemed, not to believe, but to feel loved again, to feel cared for. Because I feel like, I almost feel like he's living in a foster family who they don't really care about him. That's just kind of my Mm -hmm. imagination going. But Billy seems a little bit more like the extreme version of Hero Boy, whereas Hero Girl is more of the extreme version the opposite way. Did you pick up on, on that? Yeah, for Billy, I don't think it's a lack of belief. I think it's a lack of trust. Okay. Um, he, to me, he seems like he. I I like that interpretation that he maybe is with the foster family. I I just was thinking lower socioeconomic family that maybe just can't afford a lot of what Christmas has to offer. We see his house and yeah. it's it's stark, it's barren. There's no Christmas decorations or anything. Mm-hmm. It's it's dark. Um. He doesn't appear to have a great home life, whether it's foster home or they're just poor or whatever. He's alone. He's on the other side of the tracks, as you mentioned. So he doesn't have neighbors, nearby kids. You have Hero Boy who lives in this big, friendly neighborhood, presumably with other kids who go to the same school. And then you have Billy who lives on the other side of the tracks by himself. Mm -hmm. And Christmas doesn't work out for him. And there's no decorations and there's no lights. And he has to learn over the course of the film trust and friendship. He's hesitant to leave with Hero Boy and Girl once they get to the North Pole because of his past Christmas failures and his own doubts. I think he's worried about being forgotten. And okay. if if he doesn't come across Santa, if he doesn't take that risk of being forgotten by Santa, he can just rest assured that maybe he hasn't. Does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. without it's it's almost he wants doubt. He doesn't want it to be confirmed that Santa has forgotten him. And that's why it's so important that Billy is named versus all the other characters in the film is because at the roll call at the end of the film in the North Pole, Santa comes up and he calls Billy by name. Says, wow. Billy. Yeah. It, it is Billy, right? And that's, this, <laughs> that's so affirming for him because he yeah. was worried about being forgotten. He, Christmas doesn't work out for me, but here I am with a gift that is labeled to me, maybe the first gift of my life, maybe just my first gift in a long time. Yeah, And he doesn't want to let go of that gift because, again, it's facing the possibility of this being a dream or or the um, gift getting lost or the gift getting lost. And by holding on to that present, he makes it real for as long as he's holding it. And then Santa calls him by name and it just assuages all of his fears because he's been on this adventure with his new friends. He's found a, a gift and been convinced that it will make its way to him by the end of the night. And then Santa calls him by his name. And that's why Billy having a name versus all the other characters in the film is so important because he just didn't want to be forgotten. Well, and there's something 
again, if I'm going to go biblical, there's something powerful about a name and being called by your name because it means you're known. Right. It means that you are not just that you're cared for, but I mean, being known intimately, I think is something that every person wants. They want to be, I mean, I know my wife and I talk about this, about we want friendships with people where we can feel like we can be vulnerable Mm-hmm. And and that, but it can be a lot of head talk. Like, yeah, we want to be vulnerable with people, but with this like hand in front of us, like we'll we'll be vulnerable enough that we don't get hurt. And I think you're exactly right. What would I think? There maybe there were some things going on in his life where he was like, conf- you know, it would probably be almost more beneficial for him to be confirmed to for him to confirm that he was forgotten, because. What would it be like if he were known? What would it be like if he were called by name? How scary would that be? Because all of his failures would now be exposed because this guy knows him intimately. He knows his name, for goodness sake. So he must know everything about him and his failures and how, where he comes from and how ashamed he must be for that. And to have Santa just look at him and say, it is Billy, right? And to see his face light up and go, uh-huh, yeah. It was, yeah, and you could think it's all about the present, but it's not. It's about the fact that he was given that, the fact that his name was on there. I love, I love the line um, where Hero Boy is looking at that present for the first time and he goes, hey, it's going to my town. Uh, and, and he says, hey, that's my town. That's me. That's my house. And just the, 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 the illumination of his face and the elation that he's feeling like it's not about what's in the box. It's about the fact that it's going to him. And I'd never really thought about that until you brought it up. And that's just, it's fascinating to me to think that Billy's arc has just as much power behind it because of that aspect of it, equally as much as Hero Boy and Hero Girl. And uh, so, I mean, I've just, in this moment, have now elevated Billy to like a higher stratosphere of importance for me. (laughs) So (laughs) when I watch it now, I'm going to be like, I'm going to focus on Billy. Uh, I mean, you look at his song, uh, and we'll talk about the music more in depth later, but it's one of the the main, or really the only character development song in the film, When Christmas Comes to Town. And it's this duet between him and Hero Girl, and Hero Girl is our optimist, and full of Christmas spirit, and a natural leader, and she's singing about the best time of the year, when everyone comes home, all this Christmas cheer, and then Billy is contrasting all of her lines with... uh, the herald angels sing, she says. He says, I never hear a sound. It's just a stark contrast where their lives are so different because he doesn't have this Christmas experience that everybody else has. And it's 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 sad. But we do get to go on that journey with him where he learns to trust on and rely on and count on others to be his friends, to not forget him, and to to just be a little bit more confident in himself going forward. Right. Um now, Hero Girl, not as much to say for her, um, just because she is our sort of steadfast optimist and is hugely considerate and she's kind and she's sweet. And I mean, like from the very moment we see her, she's greeting Hero Boy with a smile. And then they have the hot chocolate song not long after that. And she puts aside a chocolate for Billy and wants to go take it to him in the caboose. And then um, it, she's just so... Not not perfect. That's not the word I'm looking for. But she is so immovable most of the film. Her central conflict is that scene in the engine where Hero Boy introduces her with doubt and says, are you sure? And she's not sure because 
he makes her question herself. But then later in the film, she is trying to follow the sound of the sleigh bells. And he says, are you sure? Are you sure this is the correct direction? And she turns around and defiantly stares in the eye and says, absolutely. And so that, that's her growth is yeah. learning that sometimes you just need to be a leader. That's what her, her ticket says at the end of the film is lead, as in lead the way, leadership, lead the way, follow mm-hmm. you anywhere, ma'am. And <laughs> I, I would because she, she's so confident in herself by the end of the film and really sort of stands up for herself and what she believes in in that moment where she says, absolutely, I hear these, maybe you don't, but if you want to get where I'm going, you need to follow me. Right. And I, I like that. Well, I do too. And you're right in that her, her arc wasn't very big, but it was significant because we needed that moment in the train, in the engine, for her to fail, essentially, in order for that moment later when she turns around and says, absolutely, to mean more than it did. Because otherwise it would have come across as, oh, that's a nice line. Yeah, of course, she says absolutely. We need to have that. We need to show it. We need to see a little bit of weakness in her so that she could grow from it to make that moment more impactful. Because at that point, had I not had the moment in the train engine, that line wouldn't have fallen so heavily on me as an audience. I wouldn't have said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And even more so, it wouldn't have made the impact at the end when the conductor stamps her her ticket with lead, as in lead balloon, no lead. <laughs> but I think that even though it was small, it was important because we needed a leader within that group of three and four, if you include nerd, nerd guy. But for the most part, this trio of, of kids, we needed a leader. We needed someone who was an obvious leader, but someone who had to grow into that in a short period of time. And I thought they handled that really well. I think so, too. Now, let's talk about the Tom Hanks trifecta within the film of the conductor, the hobo ghost, and Santa. Uh, what do you have to say about him? <laughs> well, I just he's just wonderful. Tom Hanks as an actor is by far one of my favorites. He seems approachable in terms of like I could have lunch with him and we could just talk about acting and life and <laughs> how how just funny his family life is from the things that you know, whatever. But I have to believe that he just jumped for joy at the possibility of taking on this role. And yes, you had the big three, but you had your supplementary characters mm-hmm. like the uh, the the older the dad, of course, and then the the narrator of the of the of the hero boy. But but yeah, you're right. For the three that were prominent in the film, the more I watch this, the more distinct those characters become. Because I don't, while I see Tom Hanks in all three of them, I mean, yes, there's definitely, obviously, the conductor for sure, a little bit less so in the, in in Santa, and then even less than that in the in the ghost hobo. The way in which the personalities differ between each one of them, the separation time wise when we see one towards when we see another, it completely allows me to separate those characters, and allow me to focus on them as characters instead of, oh, this is Tom Hanks, and this is Tom Hanks, and this is Tom Hanks, which says a lot, not only for the way in which the story was constructed, but also with Tom Hanks and how he's able to manipulate his voice in a way that matches these characters. 
I'd like to believe in some ways that the characters were drawn and and crafted around his voice for each one of them. I'd like to think that he said, here's what I'm thinking for the hobo. And here's what I'm thinking for Santa. I mean, obviously Santa's pretty easy to, you know, to, <laughs> to, to illustrate, but, but the hobo and the, you know, the way he, he talks like this, you know, with a little bit of uh you know, it's like, he's got something in his throat. Mm-hmm. He, you, they create this character around that voice. And, as a, as a fan of voice acting, as someone who in my wildest dreams would love to do voice acting, that just it, it impresses me beyond belief because that is a form of acting. And when you can get an emo, an emotion vocally to translate into a mocapped visual, that's that's amazing to me. And I don't know that I'd want anybody else but Tom Hanks to to do that. Now, in terms of vocal stylings, I think Mark Hamill is making his way up the list for me in terms of the way in which he, uh, the way in which he varies his voice, but I would not want to see him in, <laughs> in a movie like this. I think Tom Hanks as an actor brings a, brings a warmth to these characters. He brings a sense of, of sincerity to it because I think the characters he plays, you know, you got Forrest Gump another Zemeckis, um, directed film. you, you 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 know that about him as an actor you know that about him as a as a comedian that he has this approachability and all three of those characters in their own ways have that approachability that he brings to each one of them yeah i have no concerns or problems with identifying and keeping the characters separate as far as the ones that hanks portrays i mean you can always say oh that's tom hanks or that's tom hanks and that's tom hanks too you can do that but they are very distinct on their own like the conductor uh, what i uh, what i really like about him is that he unlike hero boy has faith he instinctively knows that hero boy will get on the train he hesitates and he almost doesn't but then he jumps on and he turns around and who's there waiting to open the door the conductor, he, he had faith that this was something that it was almost a sense of destiny. Um, you get that same sense with the ticket scene that you mentioned early, earlier, where it leaves a train. It goes through this journey throughout the world. It sort of reminds me of the beginning of the Disney animated film Dinosaur, where the egg is transported from place to place to place. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's a sense of destiny. And the fact that the conductor knew that Hero Boy was going to make the decision to come on board after all, uh, lends credence to that idea of destiny for this character a little bit. Not that he has this grand plan for this this character. Not that he's like the hero of the world. It's just he's got something that he needs to accomplish that night, and he does it. Um, the conductor character is also strict, but he has a gentle side. He he gets frustrated with Hero Boy pulling the brake. He says. Uh, Christmas might not be important to some people, but it is very important to the rest of us. And uh, he he does get in his face a little bit a couple of times, but then he has those gentler moments where he says, you know, sometimes seeing is believing and sometimes the most real things in life are the things we can't see. Right. Uh, I love that line. And I, I love that this character is teaching him um, to have a little faith sometimes. He, he even makes reference to the possibility of the ghost character. Mm-hmm. The hero boys come across him at this point, and this hobo ghost sort of served as like an inner monologue for Hero Boy, where he was voicing all of his doubts out loud and 
sort of amplifying them to the point where he's on the top of the train and he's trying to wake himself up because he thinks this is all a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's not conflict between the conductor and the hobo characters, but they sort of en- encompass different ideas where the hobo is emphasizing the doubt and the conductor is emphasizing the faith, but they build together to mm-hmm. prove each other. Right. Uh, I, I like their, I like their marriage mm-hmm. <laughs> together as characters because what I think you, you're doing, I think they represent, I don't want to call them extremes, but more definitive states of what they're trying to do. A definitive state of doubt, a definitive state of faith. And they're, I think they're just sort of symbolically pressing Hero Boy into this place of saying, you've got to choose, you've got to find your own you know, level your own range of what faith is and what doubt is and what that means. Um, and I, I agree that the, the conductor, there's a sense of, of not empathy that he has towards these kids, but I think there's a sense of he's stern, but he's approachable because we get, we get that after the train has started taking off and he says, take your seats, police. And then he goes, <laughs> Does anybody want refreshment? And then it leads into hot chocolate and you see him just dancing all over the place. Then there's right after they've, they've done, I believe glacier Gulch and they're going up the, the spiral mountain Mm -hmm. and he's telling the story to these kids. Like, yeah, when I was young and I was riding this thing, I almost fell off the train, but something caught me to be able to tell a story like that to these two kids. I mean, you're kind of being a little bit vulnerable yourself as a, as an adult, I mean, he has no reason to tell them this story, but he's created a connection with them. Not that they're best friends or anything, but there was something interesting about that moment where we get a little bit of uh, sincerity in the conductor. We, I mean, he always had it, but we get that sense of, hey, he cares about not just getting there and getting his task complete, but he cares about the passengers too. He cares about these kids and he lets them know you know what? I was a kid once too. And I got to experience this stuff just like you did. Um, even when, uh, the first gift comes to fruition and, you know, you see him (laughs) take his hat off, which, you know, you never expect him to have a bald head. I always thought that's funny, but then you came kind of, you know, tearing up and Mm -hmm. because this means something to him as well. Again, it wasn't about completing a task necessarily. It was about, well, it was about completing something, but it was something meaningful to him that he had experienced before and that he knew was important to uh, to these kids. So I, I really like the fact that his sincerity kind of expands over the course of the film. He becomes more of a, a character that we can uh, sympathize with or get behind and, and, and kind of root for, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> But seeing him contrasted with the hobo is is interesting, like you said, because they are different, and I think they're meant to be different, and they're meant to be this ping pong uh, game with with uh, Hero Boy as the ball going back and forth. Okay, yeah, he makes a good point. You should doubt, you know, you know, seeing isn't, you know, if you can't see it, can't believe it, and then you have the conductor who's saying his stuff, and, and so it just goes back and forth, and so we're back and forth with him, mm-hmm. and so it makes his growth that much more important. What I think is interesting about the hobo ghost is that I don't think his goal is to make Hero Boy doubt. I think his goal is to make Hero Boy ask the question and to yeah. consider the alternative. Because mm-hmm. if he if his goal is to make him doubt, I don't think he would have shown his face. I don't think he would come back to save him multiple times. I I, I don't think that would happen. I think he is saying, 
seeing is believing. Am I right? You know, almost, almost a little bit of snarky edginess to it. Like mm-hmm. this is what you believe, right? Well, I'm going to stick around and see if you continue believing that right. because I can't be explained by just sight. Right. So I, I, I like that side of his character as well. And I am glad that you mentioned the, con- the scene where the conductor tears up a little bit because it shows that this is still special to him as well as an adult. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, it can be special for you as an adult. This, this isn't a film that is preaching strictly to children. This is a film that is giving a message to all ages from right. the kid's age to the conductor's age and beyond. Um, yeah. And then just speaking to his portrayal of Santa, uh, I don't have a whole lot to say about him, but it's such a gentle portrayal. I, I, I love how he's, he's tall and he's pristine and he's classic looking. I, I wrote down in my notes, he's almost like a Santa dad. He's just this kind of character that I'd be comfortable being around. And a large part of that is because it's Tom Hanks, but also I just, I love the styling of the character and, and his man- manner of speech, the, the slightly slower, uh, pace to which he speaks mm-hmm. and the the gentleness he uses when talking to mm-hmm. any of our characters yeah he's a he's not my favorite portrayal of santa but he's up there and for those reasons you just mentioned the classic look as well as that slow gentle it's going to be okay let's have this fellow right here you know and even at the end where we have the reveal of the bell it says again i go back to the book when i read it to my son I drop into that Santa Claus voice um, because in the book, the, the there's a line that's reversed from the movie, and I actually reverse, I match the movie. Like I don't, because mm-hmm. I, I, I know the line that well, and it's when he goes, "Better fix that hole in your pocket." Signed, Mister C. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's a, it's it's it is definitely overdone, but it's overdone for emphasis to to just articulate that this is santa this is classic santa you know and i love that he didn't you know that he didn't overdo it i don't know if i remember did he ever say ho 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 i don't think he ever did did he Do i mean he he has the gentle ho ho ho-esque laugh ho, but it's but it's, yeah, but it's, it's more but it's like a natural the, laugh. The santa it's not chuckle. Him, yes exactly it feels natural and that's yeah. what i think attracts me to that version of the, of santa claus is that it feels natural he doesn't he doesn't feel like a bar. He doesn't feel like a, a parody of what Santa should be. And I think that's why he fits into this gentle, sincere, honest world that Zemeckis and company have um, have created. And uh, I think that's what makes it really good. Let's talk about the music now. So um, the very first thing I wanted to note was that Sylvester uses the character songs once or twice as like instrumental leitmotif where they, he uses like Billy's song when Christmas comes to town. The very first time we see Billy, we hear small snippets of that song playing in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I love how these characters are introduced. There, there's several main themes. There's that one. There's the believe theme that we hear the lyrics for in the end credits. That is the main theme of the song and it's sweeping and it's gorgeous. And then we have what I called the doubt theme, um, where like I, th- I think the first time we hear it is when Hero Boy is on the top of the train and is trying to wake himself up. It, it's sort of a a theme that dramatizes the moments where Hero Boy struggles to accept the current situation because of doubt. Right. And so uh, it's the dee da 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 uh, that that theme. I, I really like that. Um, right. 
but there's just these we I talked about it last week with Gabriel and James with Back to the Future. Silvestri is not the kind of composer who needs to write theme after theme after theme for his films. It's like he has two or three that are just really hammered home in great ways throughout the course of the film. And the Believe theme is sort of just like an anthem for the movie. And mm-hmm. it's like the the victory theme, just like the Back to the Future theme is the victory theme of Back to the Future. And you don't really need a whole lot else. Right. I don't think that Silvestri can do any wrong in this movie. <laughs> and I mean, he is one of my favorite composers. Um, the thing that I gravitate towards is the sense of timing that he has of when he uses certain pieces of music. And I'll just pull the Believe theme out because it's used the most prominently. It reminds me a lot of the way in which Hans Zimmer uses the theme from the Man from Man of Steel. How there are times when it's big and dramatic and just full, and then there are times when it's pulled back very just tenderly. And Sylvester does this exact same thing with this with this da, 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 da. and so it's sometimes it's really full it's got strings and then other times it's just this simple piano doom, 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 doom. and it helps to accent the moments that are being shown to us and to me i i think composers that have restraint <laughs> are the composers that I gravitate towards. Composers that, like you said, don't need to create theme after theme after theme, but that stand on the ones that they feel like have musical value and they manipulate them to a place where they say, okay, we can get the audience familiar with this music and now let's take it back, let's add this, let's twist it this way to create a different feel for this moment in a film. And, and and Silvestri does that in this. He does it so many times where he'll swell at one point, and then later on he'll use that same three or four notes to tell us, hey, we're in a quiet place now. We can be calm. We can be peaceful. And then, you know, the end of the film, the finale, um, leading into uh, Josh Groban's vocals, is just that nice swell of, okay, and here we are, we're coming to the final piece. And then we can go, ah, and there's like this, almost like this emotional sigh that I get whenever I, whenever they run that last shot and the the credits roll. So I think Sylvester is, is fantastic at being able to help, help manage my emotions with his music because they fit so well with the moments in the movie. Yeah. He, he repurposes things very, very well whether it's believe more triumphant or believe more uh, peaceful and introspective or even the doubt theme, it is used for the moments of doubt throughout the film. But then there's the moment at the end of the film, I think it's when the elves are dancing and the Polar Express is slowly departing. And it, it's not the, the Steven Tyler dancing. It's the slow dancing. <laughs> not the rock and right. not, the, not the rock and roll part. The, the more peaceful part as they're actually mm-hmm. leaving the North Pole. And right. he uses that doubt theme there, but it's repurposed. Obviously, that's not a moment of doubt. That's the the resolution of the doubt in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. So yeah. I, I like how he repurposes. I like the North Pole music in general, whether it's Santa's arrival fanfare or whether it's the elves spirit of the season tune or just the the, the hodgepodge of Christmas carols as Santa is <laughs> flying around the the space and then his 
then all of a sudden the mystical silence of his departure where the the trail of sparks is left and it's just silent as the sparks rain down and everybody stares up and it's this beautiful moment and then mm. they cheer and then it's Stephen Tyler. <laughs> but <laughs> fucking uh, on top of the world. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> um there's definitely okay. I was going to say there's just I don't know that there was a part of the film where music didn't n- didn't not fit and I was drawn especially initially when I first saw the movie to, of course, um, uh, when Christmas comes to town, mm-hmm. because what, what makes that, that moment so beautiful to me is you have the, you have the Northern lights in the background and you have the, the train, you know, as this, this ambient noise. And then you have, then you have Billy or the 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 singer going la 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 and it's echoed and it's just very like anytime a kid sings i get goosebumps because mm-hmm. children singing or a singular child singing is just so so beautiful if it's done right <laughs> but most of the time it is and then you get into this child's duet where you have this contrasting these contrasting lyrics that says so much about these characters, but it's just a beautiful song. I mean, it's one that I like listening to on its own. I don't have to have the scene with it. The scene is amplified because of it and everything, the context surrounding it, but it's just a beautiful song. One that um, I I just enjoy listening to on its own. It's kind of like with uh, Broadway musicals. I'm listening to one, uh, the soundtrack to Dear Evan Hansen. I've never seen the, the musical. It's a brand new one but I want to see it because the soundtrack is so inviting because it tells a story. And that song does that. It tells part of the story that gets me intrigued. And while beautiful to listen to, I also like, uh, it makes me want to watch the movie. My final musical thought is that I like that this is a musical film without being a song and dance film because it's just not the movie, a movie that needed it. So mm-hmm. it, it's nice that the songs are either just pure fun, like hot chocolate or, the the main theme uh not the not believe but the actual polar express it's a magic carpet on a rail never takes a rest that one as they yeah. entering the uh the north pole um, yep. so those fun stuff or it's the big character development songs like when christmas comes to town or the instrumental version of believe that leads to the lyrical version that we hear in the end credits um mm-hmm. so i i like that it has its music is very important to this film but it's not a, a strict through musical uh, because it just didn't need to be. So I, I, I like that. I agree. Now, as far as relevance and takeaways go, I think we've done a pretty good job of covering a lot of them um, as we go. But what what's your big one as far as this movie goes? Well, it, you know, my faith uh, and where I come from, obviously, is informed uh, by this movie and the idea of what does it mean to believe. I was reading on the the IMDb trivia page as I'm prone to do when I watch a movie. And I wanted to read this one thing. This was, I don't know if, who wrote this, so I can't give credit, but essentially it was a, a comment that this idea that says Santa Claus, the conductor and the hobo potentially represent the Holy Trinity. And the trip to the North pole is the test of the hero boy's faith. Since he expresses some doubts about the existence of Santa Claus, who stands for God, the conductor symbolizes Christ who continually tries to keep the children inside the train and ensures that the locomotive will not deviate meaning that he guides the Christians on the right path. 
And finally, the hobo is the incarnate of the Holy Spirit in reference to the fact that he is a spirit who guides the hero boy continually testing his faith and giving him options. That's I can't fully agree with that entire uh, premise, but I love some of the things that stand out. The fact that you have this trinity, you have these three individuals, the conductor, the hobo, and Santa, all individually working together to guide Hero Boy into a place of genuine faith. And like you mentioned, the hobo wasn't there to make him doubt or to enhance his doubt, but to get him to ask why he doubted Mm -hmm. or why he doesn't believe. And I think that gets to a place where, as someone who doesn't believe in something or someone who's struggling with belief in something, the desire to want to believe I think is different than someone who just chooses not to and is pessimistic about the world of the people who do believe that certain thing. So I definitely agree that there's a trinity of of characters here. I don't know that I would necessarily box them into Father, Son, Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. uh, at least not without further kind of looking in and maybe trying to to research a little bit more. But I definitely think each individual represents a form of Hero Boy's journey of faith mm-hmm. to going from doubting with hope <laughs> to believing without doubt. And and so as I look at that and I kind of apply that to my life, I think, you know what? That's kind of my, that's that's what my world is of constantly ebbing and flowing and how my faith waxes and wanes and it's kind of up and down here and there. But I have a trinity of of individuals of of God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit that are guiding me to be able to feel safe asking the questions to say I don't know if this is true but I'm going to choose to trust in this trinity to guide me and to help me work through this. And so there's this kind of this weird safety net for me of saying if I have these three individuals as an umbrella I can I can live in a world of speculation. I can live in a world of just kind of trying to figure stuff out and not feel like I'm losing my faith, but I'm exercising my faith and I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul would say. And in this movie, in in some ways, articulates that for me. So it allows me to feel like, ah, yeah, I'm like Hero Boy. Um, um, I have those moments or I have those seasons in my life where I'm like, ah, am I, you know, I look through the Time magazine, like, is that really true? Yeah, because the world has gone to poo. And I mean, where's God in that? But... I um I find a lot of sincerity in this movie, not just nicety, but real sincerity. And I feel like the story, whether intentionally doing this or not by Zemeckis and company, the story is telling us that it's okay to struggle with belief. And the end result is not that you do believe, but the end result is that you 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 honestly try to get to that place where you are believing and not that you're believing somebody else's type of faith. So, mm-hmm. um, it's every, every time I watch it, it becomes a little bit bigger in terms of its scope. And, uh, but at this point, that's kind of what I've taken away from it. Yeah. They, they don't want you to believe in a particular thing. They just want you to exercise faith. They want you to mm-hmm. trust in things without the crutch of sight. Um, obviously both of us are Christian and that is a big part of what our takeaway from this movie is, is that we want to apply it to our Christian faith. Um, the real climax of the film is that moment where he is trying to get the glimpse of Santa and he can't. And mm-hmm. the, the bell is the symbol of him taking that leap and saying, okay, whether I see him or not, this is something I choose to believe. There is a Santa, he's out there 
and I will trust in that belief. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the a point I wrote down in my notes is that he didn't have to believe in the ghost hobo in order for the ghost to save him before right. Flat Top Tunnel or mm-hmm. when they hit the frozen over tracks. Just because something you you may not believe in something doesn't mean it's not there. So take take that leap of faith. Trust right. in something, believe in something. Um now that is on Hero Boy's ticket, believe. And then we have three other tickets. There's uh leader or lead for Hero Girl. Uh, and we've already talked about that, being a confident leader. Don't let those in your charge give you doubts or take you away from your firm stance. Take that firm stance, believe in it, stick with it, lead people through. And then we have Billy with uh Count on, rely on, trust on, and the, this idea of friendship where mm-hmm. you can go to those people around you and you can trust them. You can count on them and rely on them because you don't have to go through life on your own. And so that's Billy's growth throughout the film, just simplified. Right. And then we did mention Know-It-All Kid, and his was Learn. And it's this, this notion that learning isn't just about knowledge. It's about learning from those around you about social interactions or whatever else it's not just about facts and pure stuff that you can get from books it's about worldly stuff learn from people be open mm-hmm. to things and right. shut your mouth every once in a while so you can listen <laughs> <laughs> quick to listen slow to speak right i i think those four individuals and their tickets say a lot about not only belief obviously from from hero boy but the other three on more obvious levels and not so obvious levels say a lot about the need for community, the need to be connected to people, mm-hmm. the need to be known and the need to be vulnerable. Oftentimes, and I mentioned this earlier, it's, it's easier to be kind of a shut in. It's easier to be sort of isolated. And I mentioned this on one of the uh, recent episodes of, of feel and film. In fact, this last week as, as we're, we're talking about this for um, the edge of 17, that depression is an isolating illness. It allows it, it, it forces you mentally to just kind of check out and to not want to rely on, depend on, count on other people because you see yourself as the problem and nobody else can help you solve that problem. And I think that for for Billy and for the know-it-all kid, the fact is we need each other to rely on, to depend on, to count on, and to learn from. And it's through that that we can become like Hero Girl and be able to lead in some capacity by understanding who we are and knowing what our strengths are and to do that confidently. And that ultimately comes from, at least from a faith standpoint, from from our faith, a sense of belief where that's all fueled from that. And so I think there's this wonderful picture that's being painted that all four of those have significance. There's not, there, you could you could create a hierarchy, but I think each one of those has value in terms of our connection with God and our connection with people. But those three individuals specifically outside of Hero Boy really call attention to the fact that it's about being connected that really matters. We have to be connected with each other in order for our lives to count. Because if we're not connected to people, we can't lead. We definitely can't rely on, depend on, or count on. And what are we going to learn outside of what's in the encyclopedia or what's on Google? Uh, without the the knowledge of people and the experiences of other people. So I, I, I think that scene in particular sort of exemplifies what the movie is trying to articulate, at least for me. 
Well, we may not have said it all, but I think we said most of it. So (laughs) I think with that, that's the end of the official 68th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much, Patrick. It was great. It was good to talk about this movie with somebody rather than just talk by myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad I got a chance to do it this time. And uh, I'm going to make it a point at some point. I've already seen Polar Express, obviously, for for the podcast, but I'm going to go back and rewatch it. And I'm going to queue up your commentary with it this time. Great. I'd love to hear your thoughts when you do. Uh, contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please consider going over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts on your iOS device. Rate, review, and maybe even subscribe if you feel so inclined. And if you have feedback or ideas, you can email the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. You can also use that email to contact me regarding co-hosting. If you have a movie that you love that you'd like to talk about, let me know. We'll try and squeeze you in sometime. Patrick, where can people find you online? Well, as I mentioned before, I co-host the Feel and Film podcast. You can find us, uh, the website at feelandfilm.com that gives you a catalog of all of our past episodes, um, our writing, things like that, movie reviews. But if you want to connect with me directly, you can always find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Uh, we have a Facebook group for Feeling Film. If you just go to Facebook and do a quick search for Feeling Film Discussion Group, I think is what it is now. Uh, you'll be able to pull that up and we're pretty active in that as well. So love to hear from you uh, on thoughts on, on uh, polar express or anything from the feeling film side of things. Definitely. The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C H A D A D A D A. Also facebook.com slash Chad Hopkins. And then my office podcast that's NBC's the office called an American workplace. You can find that where podcasts can be found and at the website workplacepodcast.com. And all show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you, Patrick. Welcome to December Christmas season. We're here. (laughs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 68. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 69. Have fun and celebrate movies.